you have one. If you don't, please listen in uh, to the book of Psalms. We're in Psalm 86 today, as Sue so eloquently uh, quoted that for us, except we're going to be going through the entirety of the passage. And we're in, a, a, in the midst of a, a new series that we've started here called Snapshots in the Psalms. And some of you are familiar with the Psalms, some of you may not be familiar with the Psalms, so let me just give you a brief background. The Psalms are the songbook for ancient Israel. There are about 150 chapters. They are songs and poems. Some of them were set to music, done by a, different, a variety of different people in the midst of a variety of situations. And you see a, a great deal of raw emotion portrayed in the Psalms. I mean, sometimes I think when we come to Christ or if we look at the Word of God, we think that it's so far removed from our own experience and life. But the reality is, is that these are individuals who have gone through great crisis, that have been through great times of adoration, and, and uh, there's times of great humiliation. And these individuals who penned these words by the Holy Spirit are, have portrayed and shown how it is to worship God in a variety of different situations. And today, in Psalm 86, it's one of the lesser-known psalms in that, in that we're not very familiar with them, as we are for some of them, such as Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. That's probably the most well-known of all the psalms. And last week, we looked at Psalm 1, which is the kind of kicks off the trajectory of the entirety of psalms. But this psalm is what I call the 911. Uh, it, it is where you go in case of emergency. And where do you go in case of emergency? If something happens in your family, in your house, where's the, what's the very first thing that you do? I mean, even as children, I, mean, I have my children growing up, and I'm teaching them, what is the thing that you do? If you see daddy keel over and start foaming or whatever, call 911, right? We all know that. It's where every, we teach everybody that. Where do you go in case of emergency? And... Uh, this was dramatically illustrated for us even just this morning. I was just going over in my head this message, and well, we received a phone call from my, uh, my father-in-law that my wife's grandmother had just been rushed to the hospital. Um, she couldn't breathe, so the doc- they said, we just called 911, and they came to pick her up, and we're waiting on tests because it, she just couldn't breathe. There, it was an emergency. It was a time of trouble. And, and in this situation that we have today, we have David, King David, who is the, one of the greatest kings in all of ancient Israel, and he is, this is 911, he's got God on speed dial. And he is calling out in the middle of his distress, and he is calling on God. So let me ask you this question again, where do you turn in times of trouble? In case of emergency, what do you do? Especially spiritually, in your life, when you go through a crisis, when you find that you're, you're fired, or... It's another miscarriage. Or, I'm sorry, but you're, you know, the, it's, it's terminal cancer. Where do you go? What do you do when you're surrounded by enemies and you're being accused of a variety of different things? What do, you, what do you do? Where do you go? Who do you call? Undoubtedly, most of us call someone closest to us, but the question is, it's not necessarily going to them. I mean, and those are good things. I'm not denying the fact that we need to go see different individuals and friends and family, but where do you go first? Where do you pour your heart out in your time of trouble? In case of emergency, where do you go? Now David, the author of this psalm, was no stranger to conflict or war or family family, uh, animosity or scandal. I mean, if David lived today, we wouldn't even listen to him. Seriously. I mean, King David was a man who had an affair with his secret service agent's wife, got her pregnant, and then tried to cover it up 
by having him killed. I mean, just think, if we had a modern politician, he would be lambasted by emails, he'd be all over CNN, Fox News, I mean, everybody would be running an article on him, bloggers, Twitter, there'd be all this just heaving stuff on him, but yet he is still called, after all of that, a man after God's own heart. That's incredible to me. Because here in the Psalms, I see a man who's, I hate to say, a little bit like me, in that he messes up. But yet, it's not in his, mess, his messing up that we try to find solace, but it's in his repentance, in his humility, in his honesty and his transparency that I think each one of us can find some refreshment, some encouragement. And I, I believe that God has placed this psalm today for us to lay before us what can we do in times of trouble and how do we go about it? What, what, what do we need to do? What are the steps? What do we need to keep in our mind as we go through a time of trial? Now, we don't know what circumstance was going on in David's life at this time. It could be many because David, again, was not immune to controversy. He was not immune to conflict with his family, I mean, with his father-in-law. Uh, I don't know if you remember, his father-in-law was the first king in Israel's history. It was King Saul. And King Saul ended up... Uh, they had this love-hate relationship between them. I mean, you want to talk about having a bad relationship with your father-in-law, this is bad. Okay, I mean, I know some of you have had bad in-law problems, and Saul, I mean, <laughs> gives his wife in marriage to David, and numerous times he actually tries to kill David. I think eight separate times within his life, he tries to kill David. Now, you know what, I don't have the, always the best in-law relationship, but if my father-in-law tried to kill me, Numerous times, I, I think our relationship would be a little strained. I wouldn't want to go visit at Christmas. You know, I, I don't know what the relationship was between them, but it was a source of conflict for David. And there were times where he was running for his life and Saul was chasing him with an army. And not only was it his father-in-law, but it was his best friend, Jonathan. It was his friend Jonathan's father, too. He was the king. I mean, it's as bad as bad can be. And there were times that Saul was chasing him, where David had to flee. And it could be one of those circumstances. We don't know. It could be instances where his own son, Absalom, turned against him and tried to kill him and usurp and uh, issue a, a coup d'etat and try to remove David from uh, being king of all of Israel. It could be that. We don't know. Whatever was going on, it was a deep and dark time in David's life. And he calls out to God in the middle of it. And we are left with his words to draw encouragement in our life and time and situation that we might know what to do, just like David did in a time of crisis or in a time of emergency. So hopefully you've turned with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 86. If you don't have a Bible, please listen in. But if you do, I would uh, well, I'd ask us all to stand for the reading of God's word. Uh, but again, if you don't have the word of God with you today, please listen in. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We're reading 17 verses. Psalm 86, a prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you for you. Answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there 
Are there any works like yours? All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your, fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your servant, give strength, give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may, may see and be put to shame because you, O Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Let's pray. Our Father, we come into your presence. Lord, knowing that we have an ever-present help in our time of need. Lord, today as we go to your word and we see the words of your servant, King David, may his words echo throughout eternity and find fertile soil in our hearts today that we might take this truth and apply it to our own lives, that we might walk with you, that we might find comfort and solace in you. So we ask your blessing on our time today. Glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what do we do in a time of crisis or in case of emergency? As I mentioned before, I mean, we all know that we call 911. Well, what do we do when it's a spiritual emergency in our lives, when the time of crisis? Well, the first thing we do is this. Just as we call 911, we call on God. It's, it's that simple. David says, incline your ear to me, O Lord. I mean, David continually is going before God after he is confronted with a variety of different situations and circumstances. You always see him going into the presence of God, first of all. We call on God. But what does that mean? I mean, what does it mean to be calling on God? And we can look in David's life and we can see that there's a variety of things here. First of all, as we call on God, we need to be aware of our state or status before the Lord. What's the state of our heart? What's the state of our soul? Look at verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Now, there are three things that I'd like us to pay attention here. First of all, when we come during a time of crisis, we come honestly. Be honest where you're at with God. Don't try to put on airs. Don't try to put on a mask. Don't try to con God and deceive God. Be real with God and where you're at and what you're struggling with. All too often, we come in with this such pomp and circumstance into the presence of God, never really being honest about our heart's condition and what it is that we are struggling with. This is what I love. Uh, C.S. Lewis, as many of you know, he's just a, a, an author who's affected me greatly. He said this, we must lay before him what is in us, not what ought to be in us. And what, what he means by that is this. He says, imagine for a moment that you're talking to one of your closest friends. And you're, you're talking and you're in a depth conversation and you're looking at your friend and your friend you know is distracted. Their mind is on something else entirely. You say, what's going on in your life? And they say, well, nothing much. And, and you can see that there's something going on and they're talking to you about something totally different. And being such a close friend, you recognize and you know, really, what's going on? Tell me, what, what, what's really going on? We wanna, if we really care about someone, we really want to know what's hurting them, what they're dealing with. The same is with God. When we come into His presence, don't pretend to be something that you're not. Be honest. 
Say what I'm struggling with, God. I remember there were times where I didn't want to let him know, as if he didn't know, but I didn't want to let him know because I, I knew that there was something wrong in what I was thinking. But finally, I got to the moment of crisis where I said, God, I, I'm struggling with this issue. I feel like I've been given the shaft, God. And then God said, okay, now that you're being honest, let me pour my truth into your life. I had to, in essence, breathe out that carbon dioxide of unbelief and frustration to take in the pure oxygen of the presence of the Spirit of God into my heart and into my soul. But we need to be honest. See, David says, I am poor and needy. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I'm surrounded by ruthless men who don't care at all about God. And why am I going through this? It's the day of my trouble. Where are you? These guys don't care at all about you, but I care about you. I mean, he's, he's raw. That's what I love about David. He's extremely raw in what he's struggling with and in his life. But not only is he honest, and we must be honest, we must come, not honest, just honestly, but we also must become humbly. Humbly. David was a man who would come into God's presence humbly, that he would humiliate his soul. He even says that, I've humbled my soul later on in the Psalms with, with fasting. He would, even in the names that we see within this passage, he uses the covenant name of God, O oh Lord. The way that he addresses God, he, he is coming humbly. Many of us don't come humbly. We come dictating as if we have a wish list. What have you done for me lately? Rather than humbly realizing that God is in heaven and we are on earth. As Ecclesiastes 5.12 says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. James puts it this way, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You're entering into the presence of the holy. You come humbly. And David comes humbly. Humbly, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godless. Be gracious to me, O Lord. He's coming very humbly in his request. So we all come humbly before God, realizing that he is the Lord of life, that he is the supreme one. We come humbly. But we don't just come honestly, we don't just come holy. There's, we come, I mean, come humbly, but we come holy. Now, what does that mean? How do we become holy? Look at back at your test. He's, uh, text in verse 2. He says, preserve my life, for I am godly. So he says, I'm poor and needy, but I'm also godly. Well, what does that mean? Godly. He's not trumpeting his own righteousness. He's not saying, God, I'm so great. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying that I have a heart that fears your name. I have a heart that is united to, to trust in you, I am com coming as a holy individual. Not that we come by ourselves holy. See, many of us think that we always have to have everything together before we come into the presence of God. That's not the case. That's why I love the story of the prodigal son. As the prodigal son is coming home to his father, he's coming with pig slop, barefoot, coming home. We come as we are, but we come holy. And what I mean by that is this. We come positionally holy. Now, there's positional holiness... And there's progressive holiness. Now, positionally holy means that we come not in our own name, but we come through Christ. It is through Christ that we are made holy in the sight of God. So that now when God looks at us, He doesn't see us, but He sees Christ. He sees His Son. So He sees us clothed in garments of white. 
We must come, in other words, we're coming in the name of Christ. Now, we can see through this because we're looking back through the Psalms through the lens of Christ because He is the ultimate fulfillment of what the Scriptures are talking about. We understand that he, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I came to fulfill them in Matthew chapter 5. We also see in Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that He comes across the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and He saunters up and He starts walking with them, and He's asking about what they're talking about. And they said, are you the only person around that doesn't know what's been going on? And they tell Him the story about Himself. And then He proceeds to go through the law, the prophets, and even the Psalms, explaining everything about Himself. So we, even as we look at the Psalms, we must be able to look at the Psalms through the lens of Jesus Christ. And so we know when we say we are godly, we don't come in our own self-righteousness as the Pharisee did in the book of Luke who just said, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and he raised his hand and he says, God, uh, you know, I'm so grateful. I, I, all the things I do for you, I tithe twice a week. I do all these great things. So we're not talking about that, but we're talking like the man who beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's how we come into the presence of God. So we do come holy, but we come clothed in Christ. That's what it means to become clothed in Christ because Christ is our righteousness. And it's only because of Jesus Christ and what He has done that we can have access to God. Remember that He separated, or the veil tore in two when He died. The, the veil of the temple that clothed that holy place, it was torn in two because Christ, by His flesh, tore that, that rail, I mean, that, that, that veil. And by our faith in Him, we now have access to God. Matter of fact, we can come into His presence with confidence. We can draw near, as Hebrews 14, 6, or 4, 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, David's even playing my plea for grace. See, we are guaranteed an audience with God. It's all about who you know. You ever heard that? It's about who you know. I don't know if you've ever known someone or met someone that, that you, maybe you wanted a job and you couldn't get your resume in and you sent it in and no matter how much you send it in, no matter how great it looks, no one will touch it. But if you know someone that works there that is in there, you've got an in. It's all about who you know. And with, with God the Father, it's all about God the Son. I mean, after all, you know, you're, you're expensive. Did you know that? I heard that this past week. Somebody said, you know, you're expensive. Jesus, Jesus bought you. He paid the price for you. That was a pretty expensive price. I even, when I was in Connecticut, one of the, the musicians there, he goes up and he goes, you know, I'm famous. Jesus knows my name. It's true. Jesus bought us, but Jesus enabled us by His life to have access to the throne room of God. We come humbly, we come holy, but we also come boldly. We have confidence now. We don't come on our own, but we come in the name of Christ, which is why we pray in Jesus' name. We identify with Christ. It's all about who you know. It's because we know Jesus. So we come before the throne of grace... We must be aware of our status, but we also must be aware of our situation. Be aware of our situation. It's simple. And David says that. He, he comes in and he says, I'm poor and needy. I need your help. I mean, have you ever come before God just like that? You've got nothing left, nowhere else to turn. And you finally said, I need your help. You know, this is amazing to me. I, I've met many, many of you are like this. Uh, you don't have a great speaking gift and you would never in your life read scripture or pray publicly. 
There are some that would just never do it. You don't have that gift of gab or whatever it might be. But you know what? I've met people that would never pray in public until the situation got so extreme and so dire in their life that they didn't care anymore. They didn't put on airs. That they just said, that's it. God, I'm being completely honest and open with you, God. I need your help. I need your help. Are, Are you there right now? Are you trying to seek other people in help in your situation or trying to just work it right and work the pieces on the chessboard of life so you can get your way or move it this way or manipulate? Don't do that. Just go to God. Not that we just throw up our hands and don't work in life situations, but we we go and we plead for God's help. See, David knew that he needed God's help, that he was boxed in, that he, he had nowhere else to go, and he turns to God for help. And what's he pray? Look in verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. So he's, he's saying, I need help, but it goes further. Verse 13, he says, For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Now, Sheol is the place of the dead. He's saying, you've preserved my life. And he's also asking for his life to be continually preserved. So he's saying, not only do I need your help in this situation, but please preserve me from harm. Preserve me from harm. Look at verse 14. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. He's saying, they don't fear God. I fear God, but they don't. Preserve my life. Keep me from harm. Vindicate your name. Now, this is not a bad prayer to pray. Obviously, it is here for our benefit. But if we pray, God, deliver us from harm or even sometimes deliver us from evil in the situation, does that mean he's always going to do it? I mean, obviously, that's not the case, because we do know that there are many, I mean, our Lord himself died. Many of the apostles were tortured. So then how can we interpret that prayer? How do we look at that when he says, deliver me from harm, and he is delivered. But, and, and also know and understand that he might have us die. Well, I, I think of another passage, the book of Daniel, as you had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar, and they few, refused to bow down to his golden image, and the penalty was death to be cast into the fiery furnace, and before they do that, they confront him, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar confronts him, and he says, did you do this, you know the penalty, and they respond in this way in Daniel chapter 3. Verse 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. In other words, we don't know the purpose of God and the plan of God in each and every situation that we encounter in life. There, he might deliver us. He is able, definitely, to deliver us. But He might desire us to give our life. I remember several years ago, I was taking a, a, a former student, uh, or a student of mine. She was, I was dropping her off the airport. She was going on a mission trip to Thailand. And as we're driving up and getting ready to drop her off, uh, I, my wife is with me, and we're speaking to her. And she's like, well, the girl is just laying out her fears and her... She's like, I'm going to this situation. My mother is very fearful, as every parent is, and you send your child overseas. I mean, she's in high school. You don't know what she's going to be facing. You don't know what kind of violence or situation that goes on. And she says, my mom's afraid that I might die. And my wife, 
she said, you know, God's going to protect you. And I went, maybe not. God might desire you to die for the kingdom. That's not what you tell a 16-year-old girl <laughs> right before she gets on a plane. She goes, thanks a lot. I'm like, well, I'm being theologically correct because it's true. I mean, the only safe place is in the will of God, and God might, will protect you, but God can desire to have you give your life, just like uh, Cassie Bernal at the Columbine shooting. Going to school, she gives her life, testifying to her belief and faith in God. We must not think that that question may not be, be asked of us. I'm reading this excellent book. Actually, I, I finished it a little while ago. I would recommend it to everyone here. It's called Radical by a man named David Platt, a pastor in Alabama, and the book is just talking about our call to discipleship in this world, and that we need to be ready to, to die for the gospel. And I, I was talking with this with some of the guys on staff, and they said, you know what's funny about the book? It's really not that radical. It's just Christianity. But in our culture, it's radical. Because our culture doesn't say we give our life anymore. We don't sell everything that we have to follow Jesus. That's for everybody else. We want it to be tempered a little bit. Well, you know, what's fascinating to me is I'm looking at the church growing exponentially in China and in, in different parts of Africa, and they have nothing, and they have no resources. Because you know why? They're ready to suffer and die for the, 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 the gospel. Are we? I mean, we have all resources at our, our, our disposal. But are we willing to suffer and die and show that Christ is more valuable than our life and our comfort how valuable is Jesus Christ to you? How much is He valuable to us? And we do pray, God, keep us from harm, but at the same time, we say, just as Jesus did, not my will, but thine be done. See, Jesus is praying for that. He didn't, do you think He wanted to suffer? He knew that He had to suffer, but in His humanity, He didn't want to suffer. That's why He's praying in the garden. Father, not thy, my will, but thy will be done. Because he said, Father, take this cup from me. In other words, keep me from harm. But he says, he realizes that God's plan is bigger than our own. So we have to say, God, I do ask you to keep me from harm. I ask you to keep my family from harm. But at the same time, Lord, I submit myself to your will because your will is greater than mine. Your thoughts are beyond my thoughts. Your ways are beyond my ways. But he says, preserve my life. He's making a case, but at the same time, he's willing to do whatever God asks him to do. So he prays for help. I mean, he's honest about his situation. He needs help. He's asking for deliverance from harm. So we must keep these things in mind as we approach him. That God, we must be aware of our state. We must be aware of our situation. But last of all, we must be aware of his supremacy. His supremacy. That's why I love in that passage in Daniel chapter 3. O king, we have no reason to answer you about this. That our God, He is able to deliver us. He is supreme over each and every circumstance that we face and trial that we undergo. Just as even with Jesus, as He is being tempted by Satan, He says, don't you know I could call angels? I mean, He could. He could call angels to deliver Him at any moment in time. Because He knows that God is supreme, but God's ways are above our ways, and His thoughts are above our thoughts. But He is supreme, that God is on the throne, that He is reigning, that He waits until all creation will be, become His footstool. When that consummation day, when He comes again, 
It's going to be a glorious, glorious day. I can't begin to comprehend it. When the, the clouds will be pulled back like a curtain and we will see Him in all of His fullness. The first time He came as the suffering servant. The second time He will come as the conquering King. That He's able to deliver us from each and every circumstance in that day of trouble. But He might have something better for us to undergo. In other words, we might be making His name known by the suffering that we endure. Showing that Christ is more precious to us than our very life. And then people see that, they want Jesus. It's amazing to me how many of the early disciples gave their life, but also how exponentially the church grew. It has been estimated that by the year 110, that there were 20,000 or 25,000 Christians in the world. By the year 310, there were 22 million. Think about that. What was the reason why it grew so fast? Because they treasured Christ more than their own life. So we understand that He is supreme, that He is able to deliver us. As, second, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He is able to do so. But His ways are beyond our ways. He is supreme. There is no God but the Lord. If He is supreme, then we must be careful entering into His presence. As it says later in the Psalms, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. He is the only one that can forgive you. He is the only one that is ultimately who we have sinned against. That's why David prays, we're going to look at this later on in the summer, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That He is supreme, that He is the only one, He is the one who has given us life and breath and gives us the ability to have and make wealth, as Deuteronomy 8.18 says. We have all of our capacities, all of our intellectual abilities. We are completely sustained by God and Him alone. He is entirely supreme and He is the only one that can forgive our sins. David knew that. David knew that you couldn't just enter into God's presence with sin. Not that we don't come dirty, but we also come confessing our sins. See, we cannot have known sin or unrepentant sin or enter into the presence of God without confessing our sins first. David knew all too well about confession. He confessed his sins. Now, in our passage for today, he doesn't mention the word confession. However, he does mention that God is forgiving. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Why would he mention forgiveness if there wasn't anything that he needed to be forgiven from? I believe that he did have, he said, you know what, I am godly, but he also recognized that he, he had sin. And he's making, he's saying, you are a forgiving God. In other words, he's making confession. And we must realize that he's the only one who has the authority to forgive sins, but we must confess our sins knowing that he is faithful and forgiving. We must be willing to admit, hey, we don't come in and just say, I make demands. We have to realize our situation, our status, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. That we cannot just ask for deliverance without confessing our sins and how we have wronged God. We must make confession of our sins. Tomorrow, in my house, and I've shared this before, is garbage day. If you live in Aurora, you have to get the proverbial and put what on your garbage? 
the stickers, right? Some of you don't have that, but it, if you, it, it, you know, it's fascinating to me how that dramatically illustrates, garbage illustrates forgiveness and confession. Now, here's what I mean by that. You might have garbage, and I'm sure you, we all have garbage in our life. Every single individual in this room has garbage that you've got to take out. Now, if you live in Aurora, you can take your garbage to the curb, and if you don't have a sticker, what's going to happen? They don't take it away. They don't take it away. Now, let's, let's, take, that, let's take it another way. Let's take, put the sticker on, but you don't drag it to the curb. Are they going to take it away? No. Now, here's the point. If you want to have your sins removed from you, you have to confess your sins. Yes, He is faithful and just. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But He is only faithful and just to forgive us our sins if we have Christ. In other words, the blood of Christ has to cover our sins. We have to have Christ's sticker on our garbage. That's what we have to do. Without Christ's sticker on our garbage, the garbage just stays there and stinks. But we can have Christ in our life and be saved, but not confess our sins and drag it to the curb. So if we don't confess our sins, then He's not going to take it away either. So we have to do both. We have to have the sticker of Christ, His blood, covering our sins. We have to trust in Christ, put your personal faith and trust in Christ. And then you are to confess. And that is dragging your sins to the curb. And you say, God, I have garbage in my life. And I'm going to drag it to the curb. And once you drag it to the curb, he is faithful and just to take, take it away no matter what it is. If you've got that sticker on it, he'll take it away. doesn't matter how big it is. I mean, yes, in, this, in the city of Aurora, they're not going to take some huge stuff. But no matter what your garbage is, God will take it away. It could be a Buick and you put that sticker on it and it's a wreck. He's going to take it. I mean, it could be an 18-wheeler of sin. It could be a garbage truck itself, and you put that sticker on it, and God's going to take it away. Because that's how great His sacrifice was, that we make confession. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I mean, that's an amazing thing. But what do we do after forgiveness? Look at verse 12. Now, this passage, it's called a lament. So he's jumping around back and forth. That's why we're kind of going back and forth through the verses. Uh, and we, we're seeing not just one thought development, but he is, he is laying out his heart. He's examining who God is, and he's jumping back and forth. That's why we're jumping back and forth. But look at verse 12 with me. Teach, or actually, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. So after we confess our sins, we have to be ready to follow His commands. So we make confession, and then we must be ready to do what He says to do. Now, I've met some individuals that come upon a time of crisis in their life that they call on God in case of emergency. They've got nowhere else to turn. They see that the report is, you know, it comes back, I've got cancer. And I've seen different people do this. And they, 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 they finally humble themselves after many years of complete rebellion. And then what happens is that they get made well. And then what do they do? They quit coming. They quit following God. It's, like, it's almost like they con God. You know what? God's not mocked. I mean, the Scripture is very clear on that. He is not mocked. When a man sows, he shall also reap. We can't con God. Don't think that we can. 
But after God does answer, be ready to follow and do what He says to do, and also thank Him for it. That's why, look at verse 12, and that's not in your notes, but He says, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You've delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. He says, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do, God. Teach me your way. Follow, I'll follow excuse me, your commands. Are you following God's commands? Or are you one of these people that say, I'm making a deal with God, and you're ready to say, God, give me what I want, and I'm going to go out and totally do a different thing? Don't do that. Give God the entirety of your heart. If you love God, as Jesus has said many times, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And this is love that we walk in obedience to His commands. Don't say that you love God and then go out and deny Him by your life and your lifestyle. Don't say, I'm going to do this and then go another way and don't do it. That if you call to God in day of trouble and He answers you, then you do what He has asked you to do. Even Even then, if God says... He has one, desires that you go through this trial and still desire to follow God with your whole heart. So after crying out to him, do you think David believed God would answer? Look at verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. He knew God would answer. Do you believe that God will answer you when you cry out to him in case of emergency? David did. John did. The apostle believed that God answered too. In verse, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he said, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. God has placed His name behind it. God will answer us. We just don't believe that He will. That we don't think that He's too busy, or He's too far away, or uninterested, or can't, or won't. For those who do believe that, such a belief shows that we really don't understand who God is. He is inherently and intensely personal. Now, how can we be confident? What is that confidence based on? Well, first of all, our confidence is based on His perfections. Now, this is not a term that we use more, uh, uh, very often. Some like prefer to use the word attributes. I like the word perfections because it's saying who He is in His character. That He's perfect in everything of who He is. That He is loving, He is merciful, but He's also wrathful. He is a jealous God, He's gracious, He's transcendent, He's omnipotent, He's omniscient, He's omnipresent, He's all of these wonderful things, but He's also eminent, He is close to us, even though He's so far beyond who we are, He still answers us when we call. I don't know if you saw the news this past week, but I had one of those solar flares come out of the sun, it was on the news, and and, and I'm, made me just look at the size and the massive size of the sun. I mean, it's huge. It's so big. And I was trying to see how hot it was and so many degrees. I have no idea even how hot. And I'm looking at it, and I'm sitting there going, God created that. And all of its complexity and all of its truth. And not only that, but he created all these different planets. And I look at Mars, and I look at Jupiter and how amazing it is. And you look at the rings of Saturn, and you see the stars, and you see the pictures from Hubble Telescope, and see the different galaxies, and the pictures are far off. And you stand amazed, and you go, God created all of that. All of the, the galaxies in the universe, and even our galaxy is considered to be a very small aspect in the universe. And knowing that he created all of those things, and yet he's still willing to listen to little old us, walking dirt. That's pretty amazing. That he'd be ready to respond to us, because he loves us that intensely. 
And he has put his name on the line. And he says, I will. We have confidence. As First John says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I mean, you don't have to scream. You ever, you ever been on the phone with someone and, and all the, it starts getting all the, the, you hear all the, and you start getting louder? I don't know if you've ever been like that. I have. I'm like, honey, I'm coming home. What? I'm coming home. That's not so with God. We don't have to yell to get God's attention. That if we have Christ in our life and we're walking obedience to his commands, we're always in God's range. We never have range. The only time we have interference is when we jump into sin or we go outside of his coverage. That's the only time. When we sin, that's outside of the coverage of God. We have to come back in to His coverage, which is obedience and confession, and then He hears us. We're guaranteed to have a connection. That's an amazing, amazing thing that we have available to us. So that's based on His perfections, who He is. Look at verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving. Good. He is good. As Jesus said, when the rich young ruler came to him, he said, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. In other words, are you prepared to recognize that I am God? Because only God himself is good, that he is continually benevolent toward his creation. His perfections are on the line. I am good toward you. I'm forgiving. And I abound in steadfast love. I love that. Abounding in steadfast love. I mean, it's overflowing. And steadfast love. And that's shown in grace. And no matter how much we sin, grace abounds all the more. You sin, grace is bigger. You sin, grace is bigger. You sin, grace is bigger. That's an amazing thing that God would do for us. So we can have this confidence. And our confidence is not based on anything that we have done, but it's on His perfections. That He is our God that is merciful in verse 15 and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's about who God is. And the amazing thing is that He has given us some very great and precious promises that He is is willing to hear. He has promised to hear. And God doesn't fail in His promises. He never falls short or slack in His promises. Now, our understanding of how those promises come about could be wrong. But God will never fail, ever. He can't fail and His promises to us. God has declared it in His Word, and He will hear us when we call to Him. That's why I like verse 7. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. That's a promise. For you answer me. There is none like you among the gods of the Lord. There's nobody who can answer. You're supreme, nor are there any works like yours. It's beyond my understanding. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. At the end of time, they're all going to bow before you, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. There is no other God in heaven or on earth. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name, to understand who you are. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to lay it out before you. I'm going to worship you in the entirety of who I am, and I will glorify your name forever. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing truth to behold. So I have some points for us to ponder as we go forth today. 
As we think about calling God in time of emergency, are you ready to call on God? That's the first question that I have. Are you ready to call on God, or are you just waiting for it to get worse? Don't, don't hesitate. If you, just like with my, my mother-in-law, she was breathing badly. We could, we could wait. And what would happen if we wait? She could die. You know, when you see your child choking on poison or you, you see your, your mate on the floor wrangling and foaming at the mouth and their eyes rolled back in their head or they're passed out because something might have been wrong, you don't wait. You call. You don't even think about it. You go grab that phone and you say 911. And you state what's wrong and where you're at. That's what we're doing with God. God, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm struggling with. And then God will send His resources to you. Are you ready to call? That's the first question. The second one is this. Are you certain God hears? And if you don't think God hears, what's, keeping, what's, what's making the connection, breaking up the connection? I mean, what's, what's wrong? Is it because of disobedience or unconfessed sin in your life? Or maybe it's because you don't have Christ and you're not certain that He hears because you know that you are still under the wrath of God. That you, you can't take your garbage to the curb because you don't have that tag. That it's simple enough that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you are Christ and Christ's blood covers your sin and then you can, have that, you can make that confession and have that forgiveness because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. That He gave His life for you. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And only with Him can we have forgiveness. Are you certain God hears? And lastly, are you ready to follow His commands? Are you ready to follow? You say, I've called on God and you might try to be making a deal with God, a broker a deal, but you're not really, your heart is still rebellious. Ask God to purify your heart, to grant you the repentance that leads to life. Turn to Him and, he will, and call out to Him, and He will not only save and deliver, but then you best be ready to follow Him and do what it is that He asks you to do. Don't wait. Do it now. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, it's so grateful. To, it's so wonderful to know that in time of emergency, that we can call upon you, that you are ready and willing to hear our pleas. You know the trials, the tribulations, the problems, the pain, the persecution that we go through day in and day out. You know the situations that we find ourselves in. Sometimes it's because of what someone has done to us, and sometimes it's what we have done ourselves. But Lord, we know that even in the midst of all that, even when we've blown it, even when we've messed up, even when we've sinned, that with you there is forgiveness, that you will still deliver that you will help us in our time of trouble, in our desperate time of need. Lord, when the circumstances are most dire, when the crisis has been continuous, Lord, we know that you are near to us, that you've made yourself available to us. And Lord, you've shown the depth of your love by giving your Son to die on the cross for our sin, that we might have an eternal, unbreakable bond with you. Lord, I pray that there's someone here today who doesn't yet know you, that they might repent of their sin, believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, and trust in you alone for salvation, to know that you gave the life of your son, that you gave your son to die for their sins and mine, that we might not be 
continually under the wrath of God, that we might have eternal life with you. And Lord, for those of us who, have, who do know you, but are, st- are continually holding on to our sin, we refuse to call upon you during the times of crisis. Lord, I pray that we might remove any of that unbelief or any of the pride that is keeping us from seeing who you are, and that we might call upon you in our day of trouble, in our time of need, because you are ready and willing to answer us. And Lord, we thank you for your precious promises that you've laid out within your word. And Lord, may we come before you boldly, knowing that you will answer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.